Thank you, Jamie, and to the music team. Wonderful, wonderful songs of praise. We just celebrated the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to start this morning by asking a question before we dive into our text. Who is Jesus? The grace of salvation depends upon an understanding and a reception by faith of the right Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus who is divine, the one who came down from heaven. The doctrine of the deity of Christ is of the highest importance because if Jesus is not God in the flesh, He could not be the Savior of the world. We would be left eternally separated from God without an avenue by which we could be reconciled to God. So that Jesus is divine or is God in the flesh is high Christology and it is necessary for saving faith. There are some who challenge that, say it's not really that important. We're just kind of splitting theological hairs. Does it really matter, some say? Do we need to be so precise? Well, there are these aberrant variations of the true Jesus, such as the brother of Lucifer, Jesus, or the great teacher but not son of God, Jesus, or the Jesus of Arius, who was a creature created by God the Father. Or the spirit-only Jesus, who didn't have a real body, he just seemed to be a man. Or my personal favorite, the Southern California surfer who frequents the beach and claims to be the Son of God. Does it really matter? Well, that last one should drive the point home. Yeah, it really matters that you believe in the right Jesus. Amen? Jesus actually answers this himself. John eight twenty four. if you want to... Jot a note down and commit it to memory. I remember the day I walked into the church 30 years ago, and the visiting apologetic preacher said this verse, and I haven't forgot it since. John 8, 24, I told you, Jesus said, that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. You must believe that Jesus is He. His identity as the heaven-sent Son of God, Savior, Messiah. You must believe that He is He. The one who is truly man and truly God. Does it matter? Oh, our very salvation is at stake. To believe in the wrong Jesus is to die in your sins. He is the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of God, the Royal King, the divine second person of the Trinity who currently sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And so a partial understanding of Jesus will not do. It's imperative that we have a biblical, biblically accurate view of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this very high issue of his full and true identity is what is addressed in our text today in Matthew 22. Short passage, we're just going to read, we're going to finish the chapter today, verses 41 to 46. I strongly encourage you to follow along. 
Matthew chapter 22, verse 41 from the English Standard Version. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This morning we'll see that Jesus is the son of David and he's also David's Lord from this passage. And we will see the penetrating question, the insufficient answer, the eternal truth, and the condemning silence. And we'll begin with the penetrating question. Now the Pharisees were gathered together. They have asked Jesus three questions that we've been pouring over the the weeks leading up to Christmas, they are asking him these questions in order to try to trap him. You remember this is the final week of Jesus' life on earth before the crucifixion. He's come into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry, and now he is engaged in um, teaching in the temple area, and this is really to the angst of the religious leaders, and so they are trying to discredit him. Uh, The last three questions that we looked at, the first one was paying taxes to Caesar. The the Pharisees sent some of their disciples to try and, the word they use is entangle Jesus in his words. They had two motives. They wanted to discredit him before the people, because if they could do that, then they would be emboldened to go ahead and arrest him themselves. They didn't want to do that because they were afraid of the people. He's very popular. The other motive in this one, which which was nefarious, was the fact that There had been an uprising in A.D. 6, not too many years prior, um, against the Roman government because of this very issue, paying taxes to Caesar. So Jesus, they thought they had him. They thought, we got him now. We've got him backed into a corner. Is Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar Whatever he says, we've got him, and Jesus wisely answers, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And no one arrested him. Next, the Sadducees come up to him. They believe they have an airtight case against the idea of resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection. They want to point out how ridiculous the resurrection is, make Jesus look bad. So they put forth a scenario based on the law of Moses, in uh, Leverite marriage. Levir in Latin means husband's brother. And so the Leverite marriage law in the book of Moses was that if a man dies with no children, his brother is to raise up an heir for him with the widow. This was to carry on the family name, and it practically also served to secure property and keep it within the tribe. So they come up with a scenario. There were seven brothers. They all died successively. The wife was passed on to each one. So in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? The Lord answered them, Matthew twenty two twenty nine. You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. 
by the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, friends, there is no marriage in heaven in the eternal state for believers. With respect to marriage, believers will be like the angels. There is no such thing as eternal marriage. They were unable to trap Jesus in His Word. So the last one is the great commandment. The third public question recorded by Matthew has a lawyer asking Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, a lawyer, as we looked at last time that we were here in Matthew 22, is someone who is an expert not only in the Old Testament, but also in all of the rabbinical additions to the law. So this person is really, really smart, had a, had a handle on a lot of literature. And so they were confident they'd send this guy in there Whatever Jesus would say would be the wrong answer. He'd pick one of the commands, probably one of the Ten Commandments, because those are written by the finger of God, and the lawyer would, as lawyers do, be able to discredit him with something that was deemed of more weight. They believed that, uh, the Jews believed that certain laws were carried more weight and other, other laws were considered light. But Jesus is, of course, the omniscient Son of God. He's not bothered or in a quandary by this question. He effortlessly points to the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.5, that which the Jews repeated every day twice. And then, of course, he says the second commandment as well, to love your neighbor as yourself. So the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the lawyer actually can't help but to praise Jesus, Mark records for us in Mark chapter 12. But no one dared ask him any more questions after that. So after refuting these three questions posed by the highest Jewish religious groups in the land, Jesus continued to teach in the temple. And in our, we pick it up in verse 41, that the Pharisees were gathered together. So they're, they're not wanting to cross swords with the Son of God anymore. They're like, all right, that's not working. <laughs> we're just going to look, we're, we're risking looking worse in the eyes of the people. So they're afraid of that. So, but they're still gathered together. So the picture here is Temple Mount, large tarmac with the successive courts, um, court of the Gentiles, court of the women, and then the court that only Jewish men could go in, and then the very small one right at the front of the temple that only priests could go in, and then, of course, up on the temple into the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go once a year. And so it's a very large area. There's a lot more going on uh, in other things in the, in the outer outer areas, and so the Pharisees were gathered together, and Jesus asked them a question about the Christ. I want to just pull over for a second and just talk to you about this term here, verse 41. Now, the Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The Greek word there is Christos, and I'm not sure how many, if any of you have run into this, but there are some people who feel they are so spiritual that they don't use the name Jesus Christ because, well, if you say it in Hebrew, you got to say it the right way, otherwise God doesn't hear your prayer. Um, I'd like to address that for just a minute. I have heard that a couple of times. Uh, it's always very bothersome. Uh, Christ is used 500, Christos is used 531 times in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul used it, the Apostle Peter, the author of Hebrews, James, the brother of Jesus, the Apostle John and Jude, all in Holy Scripture, use Christos to describe the Lord Jesus. It means anointed one. The word Christos also, interestingly, occurs 41 times in the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint, as most of you know, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's not a Christian document. 
It's made well before Christ comes. And it's made by Jews for the Jews, for the Greek-speaking Jews. If we, did, if we did a historical background, we would see the, the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids in Syria were the Greek conquerors of the Middle East. They were descendants from the generals of Alexander the Great. And so the whole world was speaking Greek. Well, they couldn't read their Hebrew Bible, so the Hebrew scholars got together and put together an Old Testament in Greek so their people could read the Old Testament. We call it the Septuagint. There, there is a Greek word for Messiah, but they used Christos 41 times. There is a Greek word for Messiah in the New Testament. It is Messias, which obviously sounds like Messiah. It's used in John 1.41 and John 4.25, and that's it. So don't let anybody tell you that you can't call the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's what he refers to himself as, and that's what the Apostle Paul called him and all the other biblical writers. Okay, I feel better. Got that done. So what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Jesus asked the Pharisees about the Christ. He wants the Pharisees to focus on what they believed, about the true identity of the Son of God, God's promised anointed one. Whose son is he? Verse 42, they give the insufficient answer. They said, the son of David. It was actually a really easy question. And the Pharisees answered correctly. Any Jewish schoolboy would have got it right. To the Jews, the Messiah would be a man who would have a genealogy that would trace back to David. They considered the Messiah to be a man. They did not conceive of the Messiah as anything more than a mere man who descended directly from the line of David. The religious leaders of Israel had rightly taught for generations that the Messiah, the Christ, is the son of David. Through the prophet Nathan, the Lord had promised in the, what we call the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and I'll just read you a few passages of it. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up, uh, raise up your offspring after you, you uh, who shall come from your body, and I will establish the kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That is God's promise to David. 2 Samuel 7, 12, and 13. Verses 15 and 16 say, But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That is God's promise to David in the Davidic covenant. It is God's unconditional promise to David that one of his descendants will be a king who will rule forever. The fulfillment of the Davidic covenant will come at Christ's second advent. His second coming is when he comes back to establish his millennial kingdom. In between the time of that promise and the time of the second coming of Christ, of course, he accomplishes redemption. And now we're in the church age, an age when the gospel is going forth, and people are coming into the kingdom through faith in Christ, Jew and Gentile together. And the Bible calls that, of course, the new covenant. That's what we live under. That's what we celebrate. When we celebrate the, the Lord's table, we do it here monthly. We're remembering the new covenant by remembering the death of Christ, that he secured it with his blood. Jesus accomplished a new covenant when he died on the cross and rose again 
from the dead. And of course, the Davidic covenant has a future fulfillment. Solomon built the, the temple, but he did not reign forever. No king in Israel or Judah was able to unite the kingdom after it divided, and of course, none of them reigned forever either. God's promise to David, his promise for an everlasting messianic kingdom, is also found in Psalm 132, Amos 9.11, Ezekiel 37, Micah 5.2, and I'll just leave you with all those notes. Matthew places a focus on Jesus here as the son of David. You remember back in chapter 1 that he established Jesus' genealogy to be a son of David. So that was a, an important witness to his identity. And it's interesting, one commentator pointed out that I hadn't thought of, that as we read the confrontations that Jesus is having with the religious leaders, they don't question his descent from David because the genealogy was available. It is available until A.D. 70, um, when Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans. So there's not even an argument there that he is a descendant of the son of David. Matthew records Jesus being proclaimed the son of David. In chapter 9, two blind men cry out, have mercy on us, son of David. By this name, everyone understood they were calling him the Messiah. In chapter 20, verse 30, as Jesus left Jericho, again, two blind men call out to him, Lord and Son of David. And then in chapter 12, verse 23, which is kind of a pivotal text, Jesus healed a blind and mute man who was oppressed by a demon, and the crowds began to ask among themselves, can this be the Son of David? Clearly implicating that he is the Messiah, and this brought a negative reaction from the religious leaders. The Pharisees had answered truly here. The Christ, that is the Messiah, was indeed to be the son of David, but that answer was partial and inadequate. The Jewish leaders took offense when the crowds hailed Jesus, Hosanna to the son of David. At that accolade ascribed to Jesus, the Pharisees called to Jesus and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They felt that the multitude's praise of Jesus was far too high. But the reality is, the theological truth is, Son of David as a title for Jesus is too limited. Jesus now will explain through another question that the Messiah has a claim to greatness that is much greater than his claim to be a descendant of David. And this is the eternal truth. If you look at verses 43 again with me, 44 and 45. He said to them, how is it then? Here's his question. How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Jesus is referring to Psalm 110, verse 1, which says it is a psalm of David. In Jewish thinking, the son was never greater than the father. The family's offspring were always subordinate to the family patriarch. So a little historical context to help us get into their sandals to see why this would be so perplexing. Jesus' question essentially asks, how could it be possible that David should speak of his son as his Lord? How is that possible? 
And also he notes here, he kind of nails down, look, David is speaking in the Spirit, verse 43. The Lord Jesus indicates that David wrote Psalm 110, but he does not highlight David's songwriting capabilities, but rather that he is writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus' view of the transmission of Scripture. It comes to us as God's Word from God. It is inspired of the Holy Spirit. Of course, Peter echoes this in 2 Peter 1 when he says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For prophecy was never produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul says something very similar in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Breathed out by God. The very words of Scripture are the breath of God. When you read the Bible, any, anything from Genesis 1.1 to the end of Revelation, it is the Word of God. So God is the author of Scripture, even though it is written by human authors. Jesus wanted to emphasize to the Pharisees that David did not write Psalm 110 out of his own wisdom and spiritual perception, but that he wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of God, David referred to the Messiah as his Lord. Now, real quickly, from Psalm 110, we have two words for Lord here. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There's an important difference here when Lord in our English Bible is all capital letters. That is a message from the translator telling us that the word in Hebrew is Yahweh. When God spoke to Moses from the burning bush to commission him to lead his people out of Egypt, Moses asked, who he should say had sent him. In Exodus 3.14, God replied, I am who I am, the self-existent one. The Hebrew Yahweh means I am. And then the other word for Lord here is a capital L, lowercase o-r-d. This is the word in Greek that is Adonai. In Psalm 110, Yahweh is having a conversation with someone apart from himself. It is a divine conversation between Yahweh and Adonai. Adonai literally means the sovereign one. So Psalm 110 depicts two individuals, Yahweh and Adonai, the sovereign one. The way these two words are used in the Bible is God's name is Yahweh, and Adonai is his title. God's. Yeah, I got that. I, my notes are all backwards right here, so I need not look at them. Yahweh is God's name, and Adonai is the Lord, his title. In Psalm 8, we see both God's name and title applied to him. I'll just read it to you. Eight, Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So as it, in Psalm 8.1, it really reads, Yahweh our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Both words there are referring to God. Yahweh is his name. 
Adonai is his title. It is the supreme title that belongs exclusively to God. In Psalm 110, we see God speaking to David's Adonai. It's not the same as it is in Psalm 8. Thus, this Adonai is God himself, but he is also a different person. This can be only one person, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's Son is David's Lord. David's Son is David's Sovereign. The one who comes forth from the lineage of David is David's divine king. And note there in verse 44, which is a quote from Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. It's important to note that Yahweh is inviting David's Adonai to sit in the place of co-equal rule and co-equal authority. God the Father was inviting God the Son to sit in the seat of authority over the entire universe. This is the place of equal glory, authority, and power. And it indicates the deity of the Son. Verse 44, the last line there, "...until I put your enemies under your feet." At God's right hand, the Messiah will be the divine conqueror of the nations of the world. They will be subjugated to him. Now, Middle Eastern engravings, I'm sorry I don't have a picture for, one, for, uh, for you here today of one, but there are numerous ones. You could probably find them on the internet or, have, or in books. They depict a Middle Eastern king uh, with his foot on the neck of his enemy. This is not an uncommon picture. It symbolizes the victory and the authority and the subjugation of the conquered kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ will be crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and at His second coming, He will sovereignly reign over all the nations with a rod of iron. So David understood that his son would be King and Lord over all even over David himself. This is the question Jesus poses to the Pharisees. How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? David understood that his son was going to be God in the flesh. How does Jesus emphasize or why, rather, does Jesus emphasize Psalm 110 to the Pharisees? He knew that the religious leaders were looking for a human conqueror rather than the divine Son of God that will be exalted to the right hand of the Father. In other words, their Messiah was too small. They were fixed on Rome. They were fixed on the next king in the royal line, like Hezekiah or Josiah or one of the good kings, They wanted the son of David to come and be that man who had great leadership skills and would be able to rally the troops and establish the kingdom like it was in the days of Solomon and and defeat Rome. Jesus' point is that the Christ, as the son of David, though technically that's correct, is incomplete and insufficient. He's going to be much more than just a great man. He is going to be the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is in essence saying, if you really knew the Scripture, you would have known this. You should have seen it. 
But like people today, the Pharisees only saw in Scripture what, it, what they wanted to see, and probably more accurately, what fit their religious presuppositions that they already held. They weren't instructed by the Scripture, by and large. They weren't instructed by it. They brought their presuppositions to it, and therefore they were not teachable. And so, really, this is a lesson in the deity of Christ. The Bible teaches the full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not only the biblical position, this is the historic position of the church that was fought for by Athanasius and many others at the Council of Nicaea and even the Council of Chalcedon in the 3rd and 4th centuries. God is Trinity, one God as refers to nature or being, three distinct persons, all who share the same nature, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each person is distinct from the other, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. You say, well, that sounds like a contradiction. Say that God is one and God is three. Well, we refer to oneness as God's nature, and we refer to threeness as regards God's person. If we said God is one in nature and three in nature, that would be a contradiction. Or if we said God is one in person and three in persons, that would certainly be a contradiction. But the doctor of the Trinity teaches us that God is one with regard to essence or nature, and God is three as regards persons. So it is a bit mysterious. We, could, we, we don't want to just say it's a mystery, but there is certainly some, some high and mysterious elements to it, but it is certainly not a contradiction. It might be challenging to get your mind wrapped around, but once you meditate and take in all that God's Word has to say about His nature and being and person, it makes very good sense. And so I'd like to just run some with you over the testimony of Scripture regarding the full deity of the Son, of God the Son. Matthew gives multiple testimonies to Jesus' deity, and this will not be an exhaustive overview of the deity of Christ, but we will look specifically at a few things that Matthew shares. The first one we know is really if we come through Matthew and we get to chapter 8, we've just finished the Sermon on the Mount. Before that, we, we had Jesus' um, baptism by John the Baptist, and then he comes on the scene proclaiming uh, the gospel, and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, immediately heals a number of people. But then Matthew kind of slows the narrative down and focuses, by the time we get to chapter 8, on some of the more details of what happens. And in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus exercises power over disease. And it's important to note, when Jesus heals, it's not in stages. It's not like, you know, if we go to the doctor over here and we get a prescription and we start to feel better, we say, wow, I was healed, you know, you know after a certain amount of time. Jesus heals immediately. And in Matthew 8, 3, he heals a leper. And if you're a reader of your Bible, you know that Jesus did that. He healed a lot of lepers. But sometimes familiarity loses the impact of that. That Jesus healed that which was incurable. He not only healed that which was incurable, but He healed that which kept you out of society. Which kept you out of life. 
entirely. I remember watching a, years ago, I remember watching a, a documentary on AIDS, and there was a, a guy dying of AIDS. He's in the hospital, and, and, and he's up on his high upper level room in, a, in his hospital bed, and he's sitting up, and he points out the window at what's going on. He goes, life's going on out there. That's life. This isn't life. As he was dying. That's the leper. The leper looks at what's going on. He says, there's where life's happening. I'm outside of that. He comes to Jesus and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. You're not supposed to touch lepers. That's against the law. You're violating the law of God when you're touching a leper. But see, the problem was, Jesus didn't violate the law because when he touched him, there was no more leprosy. He was touching someone who was clean. He said, I will be clean. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. No one does this. No one does this. Except God. He commands the spiritual realm. Again, Matthew 8, that evening they brought to him many who were demon-oppressed, and he cast out the spirits with a word. In Matthew 8, 28, he delivers the two demon-possessed men who were wild and fierce, and no one could even pass near them. Um, the miracle was so dramatic as he commands the demon horde that is, in, that is a, um, indwelling these two men, he commands this demon horde with one word, Go. And they have to obey the Son of God. He commands the spiritual. Realm. It's not just that he could cast the demon out. It's that he commands the spiritual realm. He possesses divine authority. He says, go, and they go. He wields authority over nature. You remember the story again, Matthew 8. The men are in the boat. They're rowing across the Sea of Galilee, and a big storm comes up. Historians are, are united on the fact that the geography of Palestine causes giant waves. What's happening on the California coast right now causes giant waves on the Sea of Galilee, on the Lake of Galilee. Waves to, to such an extent, storms that howl through the canyons and hit the water, that you cannot be on the lake when those storms come or you will perish. And that's exactly what they say. They woke him up in the boat, save us, Lord, we are perishing. These are fishermen. These aren't landlubbers like me. You know, like the boat rocks a little bit and I'm feeling a little queasy. <laughs> These are seasoned fishermen who have been on rough waters. And they, they wake up the Lord because they are out of resources. We cannot save ourselves. We're going down. Save us, Lord. We are perishing. He reprimands them for their little faith. And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. I think even more telling is their reaction. The men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? There it is right there. Who commands the winds and the sea? Could you imagine hippie Jesus on the, on the, on the shore of California right now? Be still. Be calm. Right? And just glass. Right? They don't do that because they're not Jesus. He wields authority over nature. And we could do more, right? We could do the, the multiplying of the fish and the loaves. He wields authority over nature. And then in, in Matthew 9, turn there with me. Matthew 9, if there was any doubt, 
you know, we all have our personal favorites. This is my personal favorite. If you have any doubt that Jesus is God, you're going to have a really hard time explaining away Matthew 9, verses 1 to 8. After getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. Then the crowd saw it, and they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Scribes were right. This man, they were right in that only God can forgive sins. They were right to think that that's a little off for someone to say to someone else, your sins are forgiven. Only God forgives sins. And if you don't come to Him the way He says, your sins will not be forgiven. There is a note that a man just wrote before he left this world. And it had all the worldly kind of sentimentalism. He knew he was leaving. True story. Last line in the note, God forgive me of my sins. He knew. He knew there's only one that can fix that problem. It is God. This is a clear claim to deity. There is no other way to explain this then Jesus is God in human form. If you've got a problem with that, there's nowhere else to go biblically. C.S. Lewis, right? If you want to say Jesus was just a great man, well, he's a lunatic here if he's not God because he's claiming to forgive sin. And of course, he proves it with just that small miracle of healing a paralytic. Rise, take up your bed and walk. We still can't heal that today. Leprosy, you get Hansen's disease, right? You nurses. Hansen's, Hansen's disease, you can get a handle on that. You can't get a handle on paralysis today. Jesus is God in the flesh. He raises the dead, Matthew 9. Whole crowd of mourners testifying that the girl was not, not just passed out or sleeping. She was dead. He raises her to new life. He exercises authority over men's lives. He says to Matthew, working at the tax booth, follow me. Matthew rose up from the tax booth and left it and followed Jesus. You say, what's the big deal about that? big deal about that is nobody does that. Nobody has that kind of authority, right? Who leaves their job when somebody they haven't met before or they just heard about says, hey, follow me? It was divine authority. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus demonstrates that he possesses the authority and power of God. Only God does these things. Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of David, the second person of the Trinity. He is God incarnate. He is Lord. Turn back to Matthew 22. If David 
If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And this brings us from the eternal truth that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh to the condemning silence. Verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. The Pharisees did not have an answer for Jesus regarding the full and true identity of the Messiah. They were stumped. Jesus' inclusive question let them ponder that which they did not comprehend, his incisive question. They backed off at that point. They had no desire to be embarrassed further by crossing theological swords with Jesus. They would retreat for now, but they would remain steadfast in their desire, their stated desire to destroy him. And it was going to happen soon, but not until the precise, predetermined time that God would come bring Jesus to his hour. The testimony of Scripture is clear. Jesus Christ is the son of David, but that title does not tell the entire story. He is also the son of God. He is Adonai. He is the Lord seated at the right hand of the Father, the second person of the Trinity. He is enthroned. He is the sovereign one. He is the Lord of lords and he is coming back and he will be the king of kings. He is the source of our eternal salvation. This is the Jesus in whom you must believe in order to have eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son, David's Lord, and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Father, we lift our hearts to you in worship. Pray that we would have with us, Lord, always in our hearts, in our minds, the greatness of your Son, that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and Lord, may we be found worshiping you. Lord, we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.